This podcast is called P.E., P as in Protestant, E as in Episcopal, and it is a, um, a looking back on the Protestant Episcopal Church of the USA, or the Episcopal Church as it's now known, a church that I have known all my life and have served for many years, uh, in light of the portrait of Episcopal Church life that is presented in the work of James Gould Cousins. This is, again, a fascinating uh, dimension of one single author when you sort of sit down and, and, and really plumb, try to, 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 not, to not disperse you, but rather to, to, to really focus in on, on one uh, talented man's insight. And you, I at least, derive uh, increasing amounts of good from just focusing on, on the one uh, person. I saw this in Germany with Professor Oswald Bayer, who focused on a remarkable uh, and not well-known in this country at all German figure of the Enlightenment, um, and uh, Hamann, H-A-M-A-N-N. H-A-M-A-N-N, and he, his avocation, he was a Luther scholar, but his avocation was the work of, of Haman, and he entirely in his spare time, he would work on this unusual and enigmatic uh, magus of the North, uh, theologically and philosophically, and he, he just published book after book after book, and this was completely on the side of his actual output literarily in the, the world of systematic theology. Fascinating, and I learned from that that you can really gain something from staying with one guy. Well, well, um, what happened with Cousins, he, it makes me, it's made me always furious when I realize now how um, I would have been helped by reading uh, James Gould Cousins' passages, which are many, um, on the Episcopal Church. Because uh, what happened here, uh, this man born in 1903, uh, grew up, his father was the senior warden, actually, of the parish on Staten Island, where Cousins was a little boy, and uh, then he was sent, his mother was extremely active in church work always, and uh, uh, in the teens, and sent uh, her son to the Kent School, where he received a high church, um, very, very systematic uh, sacred studies and chapel training from the famous Father Frederick Sill, the founding headmaster of the Kent School, and um, he his uh, immersion in Episcopalianism was uh, profound uh, and uh, absolute and complete uh, and by immersion, and uh, he um, uh, then spent a very interesting summer, which I'm, is the point of this, uh, uh, the summer of 1927, the spring and summer of 1927, he lived with uh, the Reverend Richard Dubes, D-O-U-B-S, who was uh, working at that time at St. Mark's. He was running a mission of St. Mark's in the Bowery downtown, which is, of course, still a, a famous and ancient and active parish. And um, this, in 27, uh, Cousins, as a very young and a very impressionable student, a recent, uh, been at Harvard and then dropped out to write, he saw, um, he did did um, uh, in living with uh, these this clergy who was very. Um, glib and knew a lot and very intellectual, <clears throat> sort of Walter Pater type Episcopalian, he saw um, into the nature of the Episcopal Church and how it operates and what it's like. And he grew up in it and he was kind of a mole, M-O-L-E, in the Episcopal Church because he lost his faith religiously because Father Sill handled his religious doubts, Cousins as religious doubts. At age 15 at the Kent School, Cousins handled uh, um, 
Sill handled Cousins' religious doubts very, very poorly and very wrongly and very badly and uh, simply increased him to, to sort of move towards Nietzsche. And so Cousins lost his faith in, in early adolescence. Uh, but his eyes were forever opened, and he always had a tremendous and lifelong interest. So he um, corresponded with clergy all over the place, and he took the Anglican Digest and the Living Church and all sorts of other uh, interesting church publications, and he kept up with Episcopal Church matters. And when he died, he had a 1928 prayer book, I think four copies of it, um, on uh, his golden shelf behind where he was writing down in Rio, Florida. So he was really of the bone of the bone. But the thing about him is that he had a kind of... Um, uh, he was able to observe everything about the Episcopal Church, all its class, theological, personal, philosophical, goods and bads, uh, but without uh, animus. And so he's a, he's a unique voice uh, in understanding Episcopalianism. But, you know, I, uh, in my experience, I don't know a single Episcopalian who's ever read James Gould Cousins for this reason. He has so much light to shed on the way things are. And the whole reason I got started with this man is because... Um, I was interested in something that he wrote in his uh, early 1930s novel, The Last Adam, where he described the departure from Christian believing of the daughter of the senior warden of the Episcopal Church in New Winton, which is a made-up place outside of New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, he describes how the mother becomes, becomes overly infatuated with the altar guild and sort of the, um, the superficial dimensions of Episcopalianism. And the father goes, mainly because of his deceased mother's sort of deep uh, kind of hand on his shoulder, but he doesn't have any real personal faith. He goes out of out of uh, uh, solace for his uh, rather saintly mother's memory, and uh, between them they raise a daughter who has completely lost her faith, and she represents the sort of the, the Episcopal uh, um, generation that was lost. Uh, you know, second generation Christianity turns into third generation Buddhism. In other words, first generation is real belief. Second generation is you believe often for reasons of respect or admiration or tradition and it's a good thing and I've known many of these people they used to abound quite a bit in the Episcopal Church but deep down you're an agnostic you're sort of like Arthur Winter Jr. in By Love Possessed but then the next generation because all they see is they see lip service so they drop out completely and a friend of mine in a New England city says that almost every old line Episcopal family in this city that was once very well Episcopalian uh, uh, churched in the Episcopal Church almost everyone has not just become a, uh, a Buddhist in theory but a Buddhist in practice uh, so you go to these Brahmin funerals uh, now in these New England cities and uh, uh, there's not even an Episcopal priest there there, um, but there's often a Buddhist uh, moment or some meditative, uh, you know, time uh, of a, with saffron robes almost. I mean, it's that strong. Isn't that fascinating? Well, I don't want to comment on that. I want to talk about the Episcopal Church I know and the Episcopal Church that still exists, although highly transformed, but there's certain things in it. But I would have gotten, uh, I would have been able to understand so much more about parishes where you've lost a whole generation and you're constantly bearing uh, older usually widows uh, and uh, all the people in the room all the children and grandchildren are no longer Episcopalians uh, and, and there's only one Episcopalian in the whole place and that's a dead one uh, and I've done this so often and so Cousins opened the door on understanding how that had happened and it's a section at the very end of, uh, of uh, The Last Adam in which uh, Mr. Banning and his daughter Virginia uh, there's sort of an inward meditation on them and the mother and what's happened with their Episcopal church now, um, but he opened the door I learned things that I'd observed for many years when I read Cousins I found the words for 
for it. And I just want to tell you, if you're an Episcopalian, there are no Episcopalian people or no Episcopal clergy, get them to read these books because they, they, they're they not religious because Cousins himself was, uh, I would call him an agnostic. Uh, his journals, uh, his Williamstown journals from 1960 to 1967 uh, have an agnostic, a strong agnostic tilt. He talks about the Episcopal Church a lot and there's one devastating passage which I, which is about Anglo-Catholicism that is sort of changes your life forever if you read it. But uh, it, 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 is, it is just an interesting description. But um, <clears throat> there's only one actually nasty the anti-Christian passage. Almost all of his passages, which have to do with the church, are agnostic. And he admits, at one place, that he wishes he could be. He wishes he could be like C.S. Lewis. He admires C.S. Lewis and wishes he could be like C.S. Lewis. Now that's very interesting. But in any event, while there are great passages relating to the Episcopal Church in every one of his books, and particularly in the Last Adam, and also, oddly enough, in his book of short stories called uh, Children and Others, the concluding story that was originally called a Skyborn music has an Episcopalian funeral in it that is absolutely it just everything about a traditional Episcopal funeral uh, is understood, portrayed, and and um, expressed in a way that this is what pastoral care teachers ought to teach their students in uh, uh, in Episcopal seminaries. I just didn't know the material existed. All I had was William Hale White and George Eliot and Samuel Butler. You don't want to read him. He's no fun, although he understands a lot, but it's so bitter. Uh, you don't want to read Elmer Gantry, but that's not about the Episcopal tradition. Now, let me tell you what I'm talking about. In Men and Brethren which is Cousin's novel from, let's see, I want to say 1936, and so it is. He describes an interesting and very sophisticated, uh, very committed and very sincere Episcopalian vicar, Ernest Cudlip. And Mr. Cudlip, because uh, Cousins knows that in the original Episcopal Church prior to 1979, clergy were universally called <coughs> Mr. Mr. Zoll. They were only only one a city. Every city had one Anglo-Catholic parish, and there, since the 1920s, the clergy would be called Father, and that was perfectly fine and good. And they were they, they were they added zest to the overall thing. But the Episcopal Church, overall, with the exception of a couple dioceses in the Midwest and one or two other strange places, uh, was almost entirely low church, and certainly liberal low church. That is to say, not fussy. Uh, and so, Mister Cudlip, who is himself a low church but a very 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 fastidious and intellectual and sophisticated man who has a, a, a tilt towards Catholic feeling, uh, albeit uh, he sort of sees through a lot of things. Mr. Cudlip is the vicar of St. Ambrose Chapel, which there were many such churches on the lower east, uh, on the east side of New York, and the big church, in this case Holy Innocence on Park Avenue, which would be the equivalent of other such churches you can name on Park Avenue even today, has established a small church called, uh, called uh, Missions to the Poorer People Who Live closer to the East River. These churches still exist. Many of them have been sold to the Roman Catholics, which is what's happened, actually happened in the Depression, some of which are now immigrant churches of various kinds and do all sorts of good. But the tradition of, of the Mother Bountiful Parish on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue <clears throat> subsidizing the chapel, they just ran out of money. And these places have to sort of be do or die or they die. And uh, But in those days, there's a picture here in Men and Brethren, a short novel about Episcopal church life that is very positive towards the hero, uh, the Reverend Ernest Cudlip. We have here a picture of the rector of Holy Innocence on Park Avenue. He is what we used to call uh, the very polished rector of a cardinal parish, or what used to be called a prominent parish, or what these also the word was 
most an important parish. Holy uh, Innocence Park Avenue, we would call it one of uh, New York's important uh, parishes. Uh, and this description from 1936 of Dr. Lamb, Lamb, the rector, uh, who's a very good fellow, actually, but very, very worldly extremely worldly, but not unspiritual, but very worldly. And I've known his like. I knew so many of these people. They're not as many as they once were. Most of them now are Southern. But uh, this, but, but even Dr. Lamb comes from humble origins, although he looks like he comes from patrician origins. But uh, I've known so many Dr. Lambs, but this just explains the legions, although that's too strong a word, the cohorts of uh, Dr. Lambs, whom I knew over the years in the ministry. On the landing, page 61... At the top of the sandstone steps, Dr. Lamb stood, hat in hand, face turned to the obscure, sultry sky, frowning. His straight figure, with the street light falling on him from behind, and the light of the vestibule lantern reaching him in front, had an arresting air of elegance. This elegance of Dr. Lamb's never ceased to be arresting. Eyes lingered on him with pleasure and a vague surprise, baffled. Soon you realized that his good appearance was due in part at least to his clothes— not many clergymen could afford a first-class tailor. You grew unconsciously used to a ready-made quality, inexpensive and unbecoming in what they wore. Given the finest materials and perfect fitting, clerical garb became positively novel, a dress of unsuspected grace and distinction. Of course, Dr. Lamb, in face and figure, met his tailor halfway. Now, that is the classic picture of the cardinal rector of a large uh, American metropolis in that era. And as they speak, uh, there is uh, Dr. Lamb is trying to warn uh, the young Mr. Cudlip that Mr. Cudlip is in danger of presentment at Synod House uptown, the bishop's uh, headquarters, because of he is uh, he's done uh, he's sort of doing some radical things. He's sort of breaking some of the usual boundaries in his uh, very compassionate, very busy, and very thriving mission work on the uh, Yorkville area of the Upper East Side. And his work is in a way going too well, and he's breaking down too many boundaries, and he's also rather ecumenical, and that's frowned on by the high church bishop. Now, the bishop who is described here, um, it was clearly stated many years ago in letters, the type of the bishop was Bishop Manning, the famous Bishop Manning of uh, New York, um, uh, the Diocese of New York, who was an imperious and extremely effective and utterly power, uh, power uh, um, macht man uh, here, uh, who um, um, used ecclesiastical power uh, and yet was entirely sincere and was a very, very militant Anglo-Catholic. Back, he was the hammer of the low churchmen in old terms in New York City in the 30s and 20s. And here, um, Dr. Lamb tells Mr. Cudlip, uh, he's warning Mr. Cudlip, and this is what he says. Dr. Lamb uh, shifted. Uh, Believe me, I don't have to tell you that you aren't in favor at Synod House. The bishop, by the way, I can even tell you the address of Synod House because I lived, lived, lived in that world for so many years. I remember the zip code. I don't have to tell you, goes on Dr. Lamb, that you aren't in favor at the Synod House. The bishop never forgets and never, to my knowledge, forgives. Make no mistake, Cudlip, that's a very efficient office up there. Don't imagine they don't keep track of you. Give them something concrete and they'll have you up before a trial board. Now, um, uh, 
uh, he, the bishop, he, he then, Ernest, Mr. Cudlip, says, do you want me to resign? And Lamb says, nothing of the sort. I simply don't want you to attract official attention. Don't set yourself up to be shot at by people who don't approve of you. The bishop won't go out of his way to quarrel with me while I'm rector of a parish like Holy Innocence. And then this is, this is fascinating. He then goes on to say, Dr. Lamb, if events move as I have reason to think they are going to, God willing, it might be a source of real embarrassment to me if you had anything against you. Um, candidly, I detest the bishop, and he talks about this and so on, but I, I, if things go as I think they're going to, what he means is he's a candidate for bishop in a distant diocese, and uh, uh, so acute is um, a Cousins' understanding of the Episcopal Church, he says, dash, and it wasn't Olympia or Western Kansas. In other words, um, Dr. Lamb has his eye on a cardinal diocese, a major diocese, as opposed to a normal diocese, so he singles out to dioceses, which even then would have made his point to those who knew the code. Now, this is a remar- a tour de force. Um, uh, he uh, Cousins opens your eyes time and time and time again to things that you've thought about for years. Here's another example in Men and Brethren on page 116. I personally <clears throat> always wondered why the Manhattan churches, which had been built, many of them in the uh, period of roughly the federal period, say around between 1816 and 18. 1835, something like that. They'd all been, they were these beautiful little preaching boxes of the highest quality, Georgian preaching boxes with cupolas, no cross, because that would not have been Protestant Episcopal at all until much later. But before the Oxford movement or high church movement, these New York City parishes, the same is true of Boston, the cathedral, by the way, in Boston reflects this, um, and many of the northeastern cities, before the Gothic revival, they would build these beautiful, chaste, absolutely highest possible Palladian style with the best materials, the most beautiful wood, and the most beautiful appointments, and lovely clear glass, like Christ Church Philadelphia. These churches, but they were all built this way until the Oxford movement. And um, I've often wondered why they would turn, a vestry would turn around and demolish that beautiful, chaste, but absolutely highest quality Palladian building, which now would be just to die for, and would go uptown and build a, a, a Gothic jumble. Every so often, a great Gothic church was built. I mean, we know about Ralph Adam Cram, uh, Ralph Adams Cram, who's later. We know about Henry... Uh, you know, H.H. H. Richardson. We, we know that it could be done wonderfully, but most of them built sort of red brick, appalling, encaustic, tiled type, uh, what we today would call Victorian monstrosities that still dot the landscape in London, for example. And they exchanged something gorgeous for something really awful. And today it doesn't wear well. Well, I always didn't understand it. And then here Cousins lances it. He says this, the frontispiece was an old engraving of the first church. We're talking about Holy Innocence Church, which is now a Gothic church on Park Avenue, as opposed to its original downtown uh, prototype. The frontispiece was an old engraving of the first church downtown. The building was small and unpretentious, but it had a good spire and perfect proportions. The architect was unknown, probably because the builder himself had prepared the plans. He must have been an intelligent man, with an instinctive feeling for modifications of the colonial tradition in the neoclassic federalist taste. How anyone who ever worshipped in that first holy innocence could have endured the second church, a senseless jumble of fake Gothic erected two miles farther uptown, was one of those mysteries in which the true course and meaning of civilization doubtless hid.
Now, that, I just leave that with you. One of those mysteries in which the true course and meaning of civilization doubtless hid. Well, I want to read another passage now. Uh, this man, uh, read it. Uh, go and read Men and Brethren. Read By Love Possessed. And then finally read Morning, Noon, and Night, the 1968, the, the, no, later on, 1974, uh, the, the last novel of uh, James Gould Cousins. Uh, read Morning, Noon, and Night, where he plums the depths on the Episcopal Church question. Every one of his novels almost deals with this, uh, and I've uh, mentioned some that I haven't even quoted. But in By Love Possessed, the... Uh, <coughs> new young rector of Christchurch Brockton who's just received his STD his doctor of sacred theology from uh, general seminary in New York the reverend Whitmore Trowbridge Whit Trowbridge who's about to get married he has come to succeed Dr. Ives, who was an Englishman of high church vintage. Whitmore Trowbridge has come, but uh, Dr. Ives was uh, presided for like 27 years over Christ Church Brockton. He was high church, but he knew what side of, of, of uh, the bread, his, uh, where his bread was buttered, and he never offended the principal giver in the town, Mr. Orcutt. But now we're in the 1950s, and uh, the Reverend Whitmore Trowbridge, who's high church, liberal, terrific guy, great fella, but he really has decided to come as all the... Almost all the characters of the clergy in Cousins' novels are Anglo-Catholics whose entire life's work is summed up in the word uh, make a low church parish high church. Their entire life's work is focused on an agenda when they enter the church to turn a sort of, quote, low and lazy uh, church into a church of spiffy high church uh, punctuality reverence. They regard their religious mission as uh, moving the church to a Catholic practice and uh, uh, privilege. And uh, that's just what, what they do. And he sees that this was what these seminaries were turning out in uh, many, many places, certainly in the metropolitan areas like New York. And here, uh, Dr. Trowbridge, who's recently gotten his STD from uh, General, is talking to Arthur Winner. And Arthur Winner Jr., who we've talked about before, is the candidate, as his father had been, to be the next senior warden of Christ Episcopal Church. And uh, uh, Dr. Trowbridge <clears throat> is getting some advice from his new, hope to be, new senior warden, who's really an agnostic, as we're going to find. A kind, we're gonna, we've talked about him, right? Uh, who's a fascinating character. Uh, Dr. Trowbridge doesn't understand this at all. He's, he's young, he's idealistic, he's very nice, he's very well-meaning, but he doesn't really know much about life. And um, Arthur Winter very genially helps Dr. Trowbridge in this scene. Listen to this. This opened the door on a million different uh, thoughts and feelings that I saw as I tried myself to change a church and what I thought a local church would be the image of what was a more spiritual and vital and godly and biblical parish. But my end was on the other side of that candle, uh, not on the side that Dr. Trowbridge is on. But Dr. Trowbridge is a very good guy. Smiling again, Dr. Trowbridge broke off. He said, you all realize, Arthur, he's the only person in town who calls Mr. Winner Arthur, that is outside of his wife. Dr. Trowbridge broke off. He said, you'll realize I'm in the course of preparing a series of more or less catechetical sermons on the worship of the church. By the way, notice catechetical, notice the word worship, and notice the church, the worship of the church. You'll realize I'm in the course of preparing a series of more or less catechetical sermons on the worship of the church. Not, of course, departing from the essential rites and ceremonial principles that the Book of Common Prayer sets forth, but involving very definite changes in form in the order of worship. 
He laughed outright. He said, oh, I've, I've no thought but to make haste slowly, Arthur. I see I've disturbed you. Let me say that my whole feeling about changes of this kind is that they must be wanted. They must be at the desire of the congregation, or there's no health in them. I'll do nothing until I'm sure I see that desire. Well, he's, he's put his cards on the table here. Good-natured they may be, but utterly determined they also are. Arthur Winner adds this. Where I can be of use, I hope you'll use me, Arthur Winner said, laughing. About what you tell the vestry of your plans, I'll venture to suggest that you say no more now than what you mean to preach on, say more now now than that you mean to preach on the services of the church. The vestry is part of the congregation. They'll hear the sermons. To tell them you want to make changes, and then to promise them you won't until they agree, could, I think, only unsettle them. They'll be led to ask themselves, what terrible changes are these which we're foreseen to be, perhaps, against? Let me repeat that. They're led to ask themselves, what terrible changes are these which we're foreseen to be, perhaps, against? How right you are, Dr. Trowbridge said, how very right. He looked at Arthur with admiration. Yes, let us make haste slowly. Well, I mean, good Lord, uh, that phrase, what changes we're foreseen to be perhaps against, if I have not heard 10 trillion times in clergy and relations with vestry is he's trying to change us. Now, he usually succeeds because in the Episcopal Church, a hierarchical church, the rector, as does the bishop, has just enormous transference. It's just you can't fight, you can't lick what the rector ultimately wants to do for even sort of divine sanction reasons. So you basically give up and no one really fights, and the people who get their feelings hurt usually it has much more to do with personal attention. I mean, if Mr. Trowbridge cares for the people, if he shows that he loves the people, if he visits them in their homes, develops relationships with them which are warm and cordial and compassionate, and if he helps them when they're troubled, and especially when they're dying and when they want to be married, when they want to have their children baptized and when they're in their sick in the hospital, he will succeed because it's really not about idealist, ideological changes at all. And they'll just sit down and go right, right with him. But for him, it is about ideology. And that's really true. So what have I showed you? I've showed you some amazing passages in uh, this uh, history of James uh, Gould Cousins uh, that we have here and in a mole. We have a John le Carre spy here who didn't quote, believe a word of it, but he was deeply interested in it and very sympathetic with a number of good people who he had met, like Father Sill, who despite Father Sill's really pushing him into the arms of atheism and uh, free thought, which he did with this young man, James Gould Cousins of the Kent School, and notwithstanding uh, the uh, fact that uh, um, Cousins yearned back for something he saw in the church, however. He loved the prayer book, the King James Bible, and there's just no question that he was steeped it positively, but his eyes were open. And so if you read Men and Brethren and you've lived any kind of life in the Episcopal Church, you're going to see yourself, even though it's 1920s and it's a different world and many, many different things, needless to say, it's unrecognizable on the surface, but not deep down. The basic dynamics of what it's like to be an Episcopal priest, minister, rector, bishop, subdeacon, archdeacon, deacon, it's all in it. And the whole thing is there, albeit um, with a certain hauteur that we've really departed. But those 
those people, as I said, are all, um, you know, living out their Buddhist practice on the floor of the on the balconies and uh, on uh, uh, in a block island. So don't worry about them. They, 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 they've, but the, the the ethos is utterly uh, powerfully grasped. That's my word to you on uh, James Gould Cousins as an understanding of the Protestant Episcopal Church and. Um, he used to say the thing about uh, extreme high church practice, he used a great word. He said, it's heavy P.E. sledding. What he meant is it's heavy sledding for someone who grew up in the original Protestant Episcopal Church where morning prayer was the norm, the Book of Common Prayer was absolute, and the whole pattern in life and givens, uh, there was absolutely no explicit Christianity uh, to be stated, but there was, in fact, tremendous reserves of quiet faith and tremendously dedicated pastoral practice, which was summed up through, um, through uh, um, warm and compassionate services and uh, beautiful music. And if you don't read the section of My Love Possessed, where the choir processes at a key moment in the climax of the book to sing The Church's One Foundation, uh, you have missed one of the most acute pictures of a choir, church, liturgical, clergy, and congregational life that has ever been penned by an author in our language. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, I say to you all, God bless.